it is I again. Um, and again, I thank you for so many kind um, introductions of people here. It's very, very pleasant to meet so many of you. And I really do apologize that I have to leave very early tomorrow morning and can't be here for the rest of the conference. This has been a delight, what I've been uh, able to, to be part of so far. And I'm, again, I apologize, too, that you have to listen to me twice in a row. Oh, man. Um, so my topic this time is really fairly different, although there are parallels between what Machen was uh, facing with politics of his day and the politics of our day. Um, but I'm going to try to put some of this in a historical framework. And I, some of this may seem much less theological and biblical and more historical. That's what I am trained to do. I'm licensed to teach history. So um, that's part of what's coming. So let me begin with asking you this. Do you care? Do you care as much as you should? If you don't care, something is wrong with you. The reason before is that never in, our, in my lifetime have we had so many current things about which to care. This is how columnist Thomas Fazy recently put it. War, climate change, economic stagnation, political polarization, there seems to be no short of crises these days. Indeed, the situation is so perilous that the rarely hysterical Financial Times newspaper last year named polycrisis one of the words of the year, defining polycrisis as a cluster of related global risks with compounding effects such that overall impact exceeds the sum of each part. If you don't like the word polycrisis, how about permacrisis? Permacrisis is the perfect title for a new book by former chancellor of the exchequer, Gordon Brown, where he writes, what makes this period feel unusual is the multidimensional nature and sheer intensity and complexity of the economic transformations swirling around us. Challenges such as war, inflation, and climate change show no signs of abating, only accelerating. This is what happens in permacrisis. So if you thought intersectionality was only relevant to certain members of society, now crises are intersectional. As I say, in my lifetime, I have not be seen so many crises, crises happening in so many places. Actually, as a child of a fundamentalist Baptist church, where the sole system of theology was dispensationalism, I won two Schofield references Bible, reference Bibles in vacation Bible school. <laughs> I grew up in a hothouse of permacrises, dispensationalist speakers could read the headlines, wars in the Middle East, Soviet expansion and propaganda, Vietnam War protesters, and lead youth like me to think that they would never grow up to get a driver's license and more that comes with being an adult. The world was in such dire distress that Christ's return was imminent. Fundamentalists were catastrophists way before climate change activists where public health officials taught our Americans and the rest of the world how to be very, very afraid. In case you didn't notice, contrary to Harry Emerson Fosdick, the famous liberal Protestant pastor who ignited the fundamentalist controversy in 1922 by scaring audiences with his sermon, shall the fundamentalists win? 
In case you didn't notice, the fundamentalists have one. It's just that today's adherents of an apocalyptic faith, for the most part, do not go to church. <clears throat> so here's a set of descriptions of the current crises that clamor for your and my attention, not only on social media, but even during the news updates on radio networks. <clears throat> Racism appears in beliefs or practices that distinguish or elevate one race over others. When accompanied and sustained by imbalances of power, prejudice moves beyond individual relationships to institutional practices. Such racial injustice is the systemic perpetuation of racism. Its existence has unfairly benefited some and burdened others simply due to the color of their skin and the cultural associations based upon perceptions of race. This statement goes on, while the United States has made significant strides toward legal and social equality, in principle, the legacy of racism and racial bias still leaves many Native Americans, African Americans, Asian Americans, Hispanics, and many other ethnic minorities vulnerable to a variety of social ills. <clears throat> Here's another description of a related problem. How can anyone deny after seeing the sheer number of cases and after seeing those in which the situation is all too clear that there is a problem in terms of the safety of African Americans before the law. That's especially true when one considers the history of a country in which African Americans have lived with trauma from the very beginning, the initial trauma being the kidnapping and forced enslavement of an entire people, with no standing whatsoever before the law. For the black community, these present situations often reverberate with a history of state-sanctioned violence in a way that many white Americans don't understand. <clears throat> One other current thing. According to surveys, roughly a quarter of the public are reluctant to be vaccinated. Many of the reasons given are fear of possible side effects, lack of trust in the safety and effectiveness of the vaccines, or concerns about the newness of the vaccines. Some of the hesitation about the vaccines are very understandable. Some African Americans remember well past medical initiatives such as this Tuskegee experiment that were horrific matters of racial injustice and rightly seek to make sure that any medical, medical innovation is nothing of the sort. The good news is that the vaccine development in this case has been remarkably transparent, and vaccination in this case means of, is a means of working for, not against racial injustice, since communities of color are disproportionately affected by COVID-19. I could go on with other quotations, but <clears throat> um, these are not the voices, by the way, what I was just reading, of liberal Democrats or progressives. These were prominent evangelicals writing about these things in this way. Megan Bashan, a journalist who writes at World Magazine and some other places, has a theory about why evangelicals have embraced these causes. Uh, in the case of COVID, federal authorities, she has shown, colluded with evangelical elites to, to disseminate information, the right kind of information, of course, about COVID. Francis Collins, a prominent evangelical scientist, who was at the NIH, uh, proved to be especially well-versed in using evangelical leaders to disseminate the government's understanding of the public health crisis. There was also money likely involved, and Megan Bashan has a book coming out about this. 
Um, but she writes this in one of her articles. Earlier in the pandemic, as an editor at Evangelicalism's flagship publication, Ed Stetzer, which is Christianity Today, Ed Stetzer, who was then at Wheaton College, formerly at Lifeway, um, penned essays parroting Francis Collins' arguments on conspiracy theories. Among those he lambasted other believers were for entertaining was the hypothesis that the coronavirus had leaked from a Wuhan lab. In a now-deleted essay preserved by Web Archive, Stetzer chided, if you want to believe that some secret lab created this as a biological weapon, and now everyone is covering that up, I can't stop you. Bation goes on to say, it may seem strange that given the evidence now encouraging NIH-funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan to hear a church leader instruct Christians to repent for the sin of discussing the plausible supposition that the virus had escaped from a Chinese laboratory. This is especially true as it doesn't take any great level of spiritual discernment, just plain common sense, to look at the fact that COVID first emerged in a city with a viral virology institute that specializes in novel coronaviruses and realize it wasn't an explanation that should be set aside so easily. But it appears that Stetzer, the evangelical leader, was simply following Collins' lead. <clears throat> During the Christianity Today panel interview, Collins continued to insist that the lab leak theory wasn't just unlikely, but qualified for the dread misinformation label. If you were trying to design a more dangerous coronavirus, he said, you would never have designed this one, so I think one can say with great confidence that in this case, the bioterrorist was nature. Humans did not make this, tamper with this, nature did. So there's some kind of collusion that went on in disseminating certain information about the coronavirus, vaccines, and this happens uh, across the board, I think, in a number of the current things that garner our attention and that are supposed to make us fearful. This story on the funding and manipulation of evangelical elites is one thing, but it does not account for the conditions that make such tampering possible. What I have in mind is a, an evangelical piety that thrives not simply on caring, but also on wanting to be seen to care. You want to be seen that you care about these things. And I don't want to step on too many toes, although in my introduction in the previous speech, that you, you did receive a trigger warning, so I may step on a few. <laughs> but evangelicalism has, since the first pretty good awakening, I don't call it great, I call it pretty good. <laughs> Evangelicalism has thrived on a conversion experience that is never quiet, subdued, or modest. It, it is always exuberant. Being born again means being able to demonstrate that a believer is truly saved. It begins with a dramatic experience at a definite moment, usually accompanied by outward displays of zeal, and continues with a spirituality that demands born-again Christians show they are part of the tribe of true believers, which include bumper stickers, re Christian recording artists, vinyl, Bible covers, the Jesus fish ornament on the rear door of the car. Liturgical Christians, it should be noted, also engage in their own displays of piety. Ashes on Ash Wednesday, observing the church calendar, kneeling for prayer. However, they display their piety, and no matter how much it is different from other kinds of Christian experience, 
Evangelicalism, though, is built upon the old ch children's song, Hide It Under a Bushel. No. That spiritual zeal means that if the major news reporting outlets and elite institutions are telling you constantly that certain injustices or inequities or problems in the world are at historically high levels, you have to hedge on wanting to show that you care, uh, sorry, you have no hedge, no barrier, on wanting to show that you care about climate change, police brutality, or ch children suffering under gender dysphoria. What would Jesus do? Jesus would care. Suffer the defendant, the police activists to come to me. <clears throat> Many other factors are involved, but evangelical earnestness has no built-in skepticism. It does not ask questions to see if the numbers are accurate, to see if the reporting is correct, to look for a larger context in which to put the numbers. To ask such questions is to doubt the sincerity of the person bringing the information. And if you doubt the authenticity of another person's fears or worries or joy or zeal, you then run the risk of raising all sorts of questions about all sorts of parts of evangelical piety. Maybe God did not really speak to you at that moment. Maybe it wasn't the evangelist who brought you to faith. Maybe it was all the previous instruction that you received from your parents. So, I do think that this is an important factor for understanding why evangelicals have uh, gone all in on some of these current things. Not to, me, not to say that there aren't problems in the world um, that's part of living in a fallen world, which is part of what, what I want to talk about. But it is the case that evangelical piety, I think, conditions many Protestants to believe much of what they hear, not to rock the boat or raise questions. Worse, it, it, it encourages believers to embrace and support specific activist causes and baptize them as the Lord's work. Not only because Christ is supposed to be opposed to injustice and wickedness in the world, but also because God wants me to let my light shine. Not very far from this hyperzealous approach to daily life is an understanding of God's will for the world in which realizing or instituting the kingdom of God in the here and now is not merely a possibility but a demand that God has given to his church. Time does not permit a discussion of different ideas about the end times. We've heard a talk earlier about some of that. But to understand evangelicals' embrace of progressive causes, it is worth noting that Christians and social justice activists both believe that immunitizing the eschaton, which means bringing heaven down to earth, <clears throat> is a possibility and the way to ensure a good society. Evangelicals may be more pre-mill than post-mill, while social justice activists generally disregard the second coming of Christ in favor of some kind of utopianism. But each side evaluates this world by an ideal world, either in the past or in the future. And the idea that an ideal world is possible is what fuels all sorts of plans to eliminate evil, not to mention fuels zero COVID, zero carbon, zero Putin. Who actually thinks that this world can be like heaven on earth? These days, a lot of people do, and evangelicals of certain backgrounds are signing up. <clears throat> and by the way, it's not crazy for Christians sometimes to fall prey 
to a certain kind of utopianism. Because if you read the Bible, you read Revelation, you read the prophets, you read the Psalms, you'll hear all sorts of, of um, promises about a great new world to come. And you also see cheek by jowl in those passages all sorts of condemnations of the wicked and the end of injustice and inequality and the like. So that stuff is in the Bible. The question then becomes how do you interpret it? <clears throat> but I want to talk about the historical background to this. Where did the idea of new heaven and new earth in this world come from? A very short history of politics in Western societies since the late 18th century, the period when two revolutions took place, one in North America and one in France, shows two contrasting traditions of instituting a new political order. One of those traditions is liberal in a good sense, the American founding sense, and one of those is radical. To understand the radicalism of the radical tradition requires starting with the liberal position to make the radical position even more clear. In both cases, the French and the Americans were objecting to a political order that depended on kings. Not mere kings, mind you, these were divine right kings. These Christian monarchs traced their lineage back to the Christian Roman emperors, starting with Constantine, and then farther back to the monarchs of the Old Testament. Indeed, one of the amazing features of political history in the West is that for all the writings Christians appropriated from the Greeks, who prized democracy, and from the Romans, who are known for their republic, European politics for almost 1,200 years featured monarchy. Why? Because it's in the Bible. Say what you may about courts, legislatures, or popular consent, a Christian monarch was the best way to preserve order in society because God himself had instituted monarchy and is himself the sovereign over all things. Listen to King James the first of the King James Bible fame, what he wrote about monarchy, 1603. Kings are called gods by the prophetical King David because they sit upon God's throne in the earth and have the account of their administration to give unto him. Their office is to minister justice and judgment to the people, as the same David says, to advance the good and punish the evil, as he likewise says to establish good laws to his people and procure obedience to the same, as diverse good kings of Judah did. To procure the peace of the people, as the same David says, to decide all controversies that can arise among them, as Solomon did, to be the minister of God for the wealth of them that do well, and as the minister of God, to take vengeance upon them that do evil, as St. Paul says. And finally, the king, as a good pastor, is to go out and be before his people and as is said in the first of Samuel, that through the prince's prosperity, the people's peace may be procured. So these divine right monarchs throughout all of European history were appealing, all, usually most of the time, to the Hebrew monarchs of the Old Testament. <clears throat> so it is important to say that the English experience with monarchy was different from the French. Even so, at the end of the 18th century, some Europeans were looking for a better form of government and looked to republicanism as the answer, which is why the Fran France is a republic and the United States is a republic. 
if you can still believe that. Uh, what makes the American Revolution liberal compared to France's radicalism is that the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution build on British political systems rather than simply blowing them up. The English, after all, had a way of checking tyrannical kings going all the way back to Magna Carta in 1215 when monarchs had to cooperate with lords and noblemen through a parliamentary system. Rivalry between the parliament and the crown was equally heated during the rule of the Stuarts, James I being one of those Stuarts. That rule lasted between 1603 and 1689. So hot was that rivalry that Parliament and Charles went to war. Parliament called an assembly of pastors and theologians to draw up a new religious order for England that we know as the Westminster Assembly, and the king lost and eventually lost his head in execution. The final chapter of this rivalry came with the so-called Glorious Revolution which saw the emer of 1689, which saw the emergence of a constitutional monarch in which parliament and the monarchy had checks upon each other. This sort of constitutional order in which government officials have limited power and therefore are not arbitrary is the basis for the political liberalism in the early modern, not the 20th century sense. <clears throat> if the British system was so great, why did the American colonists revolt? One quick answer is that the American patriots objected to Parliament more than they did to the king. It was Parliament that was taxing the colonists to pay for the recent war between Britain and France, part of which took place in North America. Leading colonists actually thought that if Americans could gain representation in London at, at Parliament, they would have a chance to air grievances and find an equitable arrangement within the British Empire and thus not have to gain independence. The failure of Parliament led the colonists to declare independence, and the Declaration of Independence was part of the war for independence, which, once finished, gave the colonists a chance to form a new government. The system that they adopted in the Constitution was one of checks and balances within a federal system. The executive, legislative, and judicial branches checked each other in the running of federal affairs, and the federal government in turn shared governance with states whose governments handled the lion's share of local business. It was and remains a messy system, but that is the point. Americans distrusted rulers with too much power. They may not have all been Calvinists, but the founders did understand that human nature is not inherently virtuous. Worse, rulers were capable of doing great evil in the name of doing great good. As James Madison said, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. That in and itself is a recognition of the challenge of achieving social order thanks to fallen human nature. What Madison added was equally important. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. But because angels do not apparently have this responsibility in God's creation, the American government needed to set up a system that protected the rights of citizens and checked the powers of government. Of course, the problem with a liberal political system is that it merely finds ways to coexist with the limits, foibles, and fallenness of human existence. 
It cannot make the world a better place because human sinfulness goes all the way down and enters into every part of human relations, including into government itself. In fact, finding some sort of eschatological dream in political liberalism is virtually impossible. As aspirational as the U.S. Constitution gets in its preamble, which reads, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and, the, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. That's as utopian as the Constitution gets. Someone could read any number of social justice activist causes into that sentence, though that same person would have to look long and hard in the Constitution to find support for a millennialist reading of American government or national purpose. Sorry? I, I still can't hear you. Let me just keep going. Sorry. <clears throat> At the same time, the statement is remarkably modest, even boring compared to the radicalism that the French Revolution tried to achieve and later inspired. The differences between the French and American revolutions are substantial, even if both were inspired by important ideas circulating within the Enlightenment, such as the value of scientific discovery, the superiority of reason over faith for administering civic life, and the insights of political science for understanding human relations and government's responsibilities. Despite certain similarities, the French Revolution was radical compared to the American. And the American Revolution looks actually remarkably conservative because the grip that divine right monarchy had on the French society was so much tighter than the British monarchies. France did not have a strong parliamentary tr tradition that encouraged discussion of rights and liberties. It had no glorious revolution. At the same time, the relationship between French monarchs and the papacy, a thorny one that was not enjoyable for either side, left little room for considering the benefits of that relationship between church and state for the rest of French society. Church-state relations ran through the prism of securing the king's power and glory. That aspect of the French monarchy drove the French Revolution to be explicitly anti-clerical in contrast to the American Revolution, which was friendly to the variety of Protestant denominations in the American colonies and also provided a haven for non-Protestant groups such as Roman Catholics and, and Jews. <clears throat> At the same time, and this is, is true of many radical political movements, if the evils of the existing regime are hellish, the promise of the revolution has to be heavenly. <clears throat> this is precisely how Maximilien Robespierre, president of the French National Assembly, in, in 1794, framed the revolution's significance. And he wrote, he wrote this. What is the end of our revolution? The tranquil enjoyment of liberty and equality, the reign of that eternal justice, the laws of which are graven, not on marble or stone, but in the hearts of men, even in the heart of the slave who has forgotten them, and, that in, the, and in that of the tyrant who disowns them. We wish that order of things where all the low and cruel passions are enchained, all the beneficent and generous passions awakened by the laws, where ambition subsists in a desire to, to, excuse me, to deserve glory and serve the country, 
where distinctions grow out of the system of equality, where the citizen submits to the authority of the magistrate, the magistrate obeys that of the people, and the people are governed by a love of justice, where the country secures the comfort of each individual, and where each individual prides himself on the prosperity and glory of his country, where every soul expands by a free communication of Republican sentiments and by the necessity of deserving the esteem of a great people. He's not finished. Where the arts serve to embellish that liberty which gives them value and support, and commerce is a source of public wealth and not merely of immense riches to a few individuals. Who wouldn't want to live in a world like that? But then ask yourself, is such a life possible in a fallen world? And what do you need to do to ensure that low and, low and cruel passions are enchained? Sure, we might object to the ambition of needing to serve the glory of the country and not of God, but a country in which the love of justice governs the people, where the country secures the comfort of each individual, what could go wrong? If this is not utopian, it is clearly idealist, and for that reason, has almost no specifics on policy or laws that will bring this brave new world into existence. And when it turns out, as it did during the so-called reign of terror, when for six months, roughly 250 people were executed each day on the grounds of disloyalty to the high ideals of the republic, you need to eliminate your enemies to inaugurate the millennium. If you realize that, you may have second thoughts about a world free from injustice. If the French Revolution represented the radical vision of equality in the realm of politics, Marxism expressed the ideals of equality in the sphere of economics. Here we need to remember that communism and socialism were mid-19th century responses to the often harrowing circumstances of working in factories and living in filthy cities during the early stages of the Industrial Revolution. These ideologies also <clears throat> protested the gap between owners and workers that characterized this period of economic development. That is one set way of saying that Karl Marx had a point, but the solution he proposed for an industrial economy sounded good in utopia, but again, may not have been realistic about the possibility of escaping the inequalities that come when human beings use their native abilities. In the case of Marxism, what is striking is that inequalities that come from a capitalist system require radical solutions. To make the world just, imposition comes with it, and this, ends the, this means the end of liberal society. Here is what, what Marx wrote. In communist society, accumulated labor is but a means to widen, enrich, to promote the existence of the laborer. In bourgeois society, therefore, the past dominates the present. In communist society, the present dominates the past. Sounds a little bit like today. In bourgeois society, capital is independent and has individuality, while the living person is dependent and has no individuality. And the abolition of this, abolition of this state of things is called by the bourgeois abolition of individuality and freedom, and rightly so. The abolition of bourgeois individuality, bourgeois independence, and bourgeois freedom is undoubtedly aimed at. Nevertheless, it, in most advanced countries, the following will pretty generally be applicable. First of all, abolition of property in land and application of all rents of land to public purposes. 
a heavy progressive tax or graduated income tax, abolition of all right of inheritance, confiscation of the property of all emigrants and rebels, centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank, centralization of means of communication and transport in the hands of the state, extension of factories and instruments of production owned by the state, <clears throat> free education for all children in public schools, abolition of children's factory labor in its present form. This is total control, not merely of an economic system, but most aspects of a modern society. The scope is total, and that's one reason why we call it totalitarian. And the title of that movie that won the Academy Award from a few years ago comes to mind. Everything, everywhere, all at once. <clears throat> of course, the ideals of equality continue in various forms on the left. On the left, as recently as 12 years ago, protesters under the banner of Occupy Wall Street took to the streets and set up encampments of various cities around the United States. The reasons for the protest, if we remember accurately, were not unreasonable. The so-called Great Reception of 2008 saw people across the nation lose jobs, I was one of them, and homes thanks to the greed at Wall Street, idealism of federal officials who wanted everyone to own a home, and gross failure by the government's regulatory agencies. The failure of the economic system was real and severe. And so the Occupy protesters took up encampments around the United States, and they have a long list of things to which they object. And it wasn't just money, it was foreign policy, it was detainment of prisoners in the terrorist campaigns, um, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, it's, a, it's a really striking document that builds on the kind of radicalism of both the French Revolution and Marxism. <clears throat> and again, many of these things are worth uh, noticing and objecting to. Governments do a lot of bad things. But this, the question is, how do you overcome it? And does liberal, do liberal political orders have some kind of built-in measures for trying to remedy those situations? We do. <clears throat> These protests stem from a sense of injustice and a desire to abolish it. The goal was to live in a world without equality, without war, without the powerful having more power and goods than those without power. And again, who would not want that? For some Christians of a post-millennial frame of mind, eliminating such problems becomes the path to establishing God's kingdom on earth. For other, it's a, others, it's a way of saying, Lord, come quickly, because the only way this ideal world will be realized is in the new heavens and the new earth. Radicalism is utopian. It was an ideal world tried to be brought into the here and now. It is perhaps a little crazy because such radicals think this ideal world is possible. Everyone who knows marriage, who's been married, knows that I, that ideal world is not possible. No, no offense, dear. Liberals, in contrast, know that the world is fallen. A liberal political order that uses government to maintain a measure of order and protect the freedoms of people stems from a sense that an entirely just and equitable society is impossible. So the best we can do is create conditions that allow people to live productively, as productively and responsibly as possible and manage government in ways to respond to crises. Jesus may not have been a liberal when he said, the poor you will always have with you, but his realism about affairs in this world before his second coming is a basic ingredient in the operating system 
of liberal political structures. <clears throat> now, I should say that this is not something new. I was just teaching a book last week in a course on religious history in America about social reforms and the revivals of the second pretty good awakening, or not so great awakening, really, of the 19th century. And the language of utopianism and radicalism by many Protestants who supported those revivals is actually stunning. So again, this is not what we're experiencing now with evangelical elites embracing some of these things, is not new. But you might think that after two world wars, economic depression, lots of other bad stuff that happened in the 20th century, people might want to back, back away from that. So I'll close with, with uh, this. A, 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 a political scientist, political theorist who teaches at Georgetown University, um, who writes about Reinhold Niebuhr in a way that I think is instructive. I'm not a fan of Reinhold Niebuhr. I think he's overrated. I wish people, more people would pay attention to J. Gresson Machen. But Niebuhr does allow people, Christians and non-Christians, when talking about American society and American government, to make points of an Augustinian or Calvinistic nature in the sense that it's a fallen world. And I guess I heard somebody on the radio recently say, put on a helmet. And get, you're just going to get beat up. So here's what this, this fellow, Mark Mitchell, who has a really good book about the woke awakening as well. Um, Niebuhr's great gift was his ability to position the horrors of the 20th century within the biblical horizon of Adam's fall, Christ's incarnation, and the long patient wait for God's providential plan of history to unfold. This is not the theology of Aquinas in which reason's light shines brightly, but rather that of the late Augustine who lives by faith and not by sight in the aftermath of the collapse of the Roman world. Only staunch biblicists and in a deeply twisted way, new elect parishioners in the establishment church of identity politics practice this sort of thinking in America today. The former Niebuhr rejected because they had disengaged with the world. The latter he would indict because they seek to transform the world authorized by what can only be, be described as a Christian heresy. For Niebuhr, all, man, all of mankind is stained by sin, and as a consequence, all mortal institutions, including the churches, are tainted by that stain. The great longing in man for justice in a broken world remains unfulfilled until Christ returns, not in love, but in judgment. Ident identity politics declares that some are stained, the irredeemables, and some are innocent, they are victims. And that the party of the purity of the community, the code for which is our democracy, can be guaranteed by purging, canceling, stain, be it whiteness or dirty fossil fuels. For Niebuhr, this would be yet another utopian scheme to cleanse the world. He himself witnessed a half century of failed attempts to do just that at the cost of 100 million lives. Are we on the verge of another such cleaning? He would wonder. The darkness in man is not illuminated through a program of spiritual eugenics that separates pure and impure identity groups as identity, as identity politics propounds. The darkness in man resides in every heart, no matter what the person's race, sex, or gender, which is a utopian illusion, sorry, ethnicity or religion. So, the gospel and its teaching about human sinfulness and the need for a savior, 
through the, through the saving work of Christ is really very compatible. It doesn't mean that liberalism is Christian, but it's very compatible with the kind of realism that's built into a liberal political order. It is, Christianity is not a radical political system. And uh, Niebuhr catches some of that there, and I think if you fall on the Augustinian or Calvinistic side of uh, history of theology, you will also uh, find political liberalism perhaps a little reassuring. So I'll stop there. <laughs>